Romans 9, 1 to 13. So we are beginning a new section of the book of Romans. Remember the chapters and the verses are not original. This was really just a letter written from Paul to the Romans. No little numbers. The chapters came much, much later, over a thousand years later, and the verses came about 1,500 years later. So the little numbers came even later. But I think everyone would agree thematically, chapter 9 sort of begins a new section of the letter. The first section, chapter 1, really going up into chapter 7, is really outlining the gospel itself. What is the good news? What is it that we as Christians believe about God and what he has done through his son Jesus? We talked about how we are not saved by the law, we're not saved by our goodness or any ritual. It takes faith in Christ and that's how we get into a right standing before God. Then we have 9 through 11, after 9 through 11, starting at verse 12, oh, for, sorry, I left out 8, which we just spent a long time in. 8 talks about the Christian life and really the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the assurance that comes from knowing Him. Skipping to chapter 12 to the end of the book is the practical sort of outworking of the gospel in our lives. Gets to very, very specific practical applications of the gospel. But before that is this section, chapters 9 through 11. And some have said that this basically is a totally different letter. I mean, it's just kind of stuck in the middle here. It doesn't have much to do with the rest of the letter. Others have gone far the other direction, and they said this is the heart of the letter. This is the most important part of Romans entirely. I think they're probably both a little wrong. I think 8 was really the heart of the letter. But really what 9 through 11 deals with is the question of how the gospel relates to Israel. We think about the plan of God and really the story of the Bible, that God creates human beings, human beings rebel against him, fall into sin. God chooses one people in all the face of the earth to be his light to the world, to give his Torah to them, that they're going to be the chosen people, right? We just talked about chosen people ministries, is uh, where the one that Mike Hertz and of course Mitch Foreman um, serve in. But what happens when Jesus comes into this world, who is himself the Jewish Messiah, is for the most part, not entirely, as we just saw, Israel rejects him. You wouldn't have guessed that the story would go that way. You would think that the Jewish Messiah comes and Israel receives him and then they're all of a sudden able to be a true light to all the nations. Something seems a bit off. And that's what Romans 9 through 11 deals with. And what we see is that God is sovereign over election. God has his plan, and he's working out his perfect plan. Nobody sort of messed around, threw a monkey in the wrench, a monkey wrench in the mix. How does, how does it go? Um, God is still working out his perfect plan. In fact, even the rabbis recognize the sovereignty of God in these things. Uh, rabbi Rashi, probably the most famous rabbi in the history of Israel, receive with simplicity all that happens to you. Of course, Gamaliel in the scripture, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, meaning the Christians. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The modern uh, Jewish scholar Eli Wiesel says, in Jewish history, there are no coincidences. God is sovereignly working out his plan over election. Now, there's a lot in Romans 9 through 11 that we're going to cover over the next number of weeks. Um, today, we're just going to kind of dip our toes in, okay? We've got a lot to cover. We're just going to cover the first 13 verses and seeing 
how God is sovereign over election and how that relates specifically to Israel. Read with me. It'll be on the screen or you can open up your Bible to Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the application of his word this morning. Here's where we're going. Verses 1 through 3, longing for Israel to know Christ. Longing for Israel to know their Messiah. 4 to 5, Israel is still chosen and blessed. We'll talk about that. And finally, 6 to 13, within Israel, there is spiritual Israel. And of course, we'll look to application as we go through it. Paul starts off this section saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Now, Paul, from all we know, is a very honest man in general. But if Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, you know that what he's saying is going to be absolutely true. He says specifically, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is about as close as you can get to saying, I swear by the Lord my God, right? Because we're told not to swear by God, so he doesn't swear by God. But it's about as close as you can get to saying, what I'm telling you is absolutely true. This is not flowery language. This is not me trying to show as if I really care, but I really don't. I am speaking honestly and clearly with you when I say that I am filled with sorrow. That I am filled with unceasing anguish in my heart. Why would he be filled with anguish and sorrow? He had just talked about the glory of the gospel, the inseparable nature of Christians from our God, the love of Christ in God. He says specifically, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, damned, sent to hell, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now usually when Paul says brothers, he's talking about his brothers and sisters in Christ, but in this particular context, he clarifies, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
my fellow Jews, my Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul is saying, I would wish that I myself would be damned if it could save my own people. Now understand, this is not a request that God would ever answer, okay? Um, This is not something that God would say, okay, Paul, we'll make the deal. Uh, You get cut off and go to hell and we'll save Israel. That's not the idea here, but you see Paul's heart and his longing and his passion. In fact, there's only one time in which God actually did make that deal. Did you know that? In the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who took upon himself the forsakenness and rejection of the Father in our place. He's the one who was accursed, not cut off from Christ because he is Christ, but cut off from the Father, at least momentarily, on the cross so that we ourselves could then belong to him. And so what we see here with Paul is really the heart of Christ. When you have this longing, and friends, I know some of you guys would probably say, I feel this longing too especially for you as who have kids who don't know the Lord Jesus. You would say, I myself would choose to go to hell than have my kids never believe in Jesus, right? You feel that, that desire, that longing in you that you'd be even willing to sacrifice the greatest and most important thing, right? Nothing else in life really matters at the end of the day except for faith in Christ because this life is a momentary, like a second when compared to eternity, And where we end up in eternity is of infinite importance. And you'd say, I'd be willing to even be cut off for the sake of others. What you are displaying in your heart, in your mind, is the heart of Christ. That's his love for his people. It's evidence of grace. That we would love in in the way that Christ loved us. But no, God doesn't make that deal. Friends, I think what we see here is a a longing for evangelism. You know, it's funny because we're... Oftentimes, I think, tempted, I'm speaking for myself, to feel the exact opposite of that, right? Um, I'm, I'm set. I'm getting to heaven because I got Jesus as my Savior. And anything above and beyond that in terms of evangelism and missions, that's just icing on the cake, all right? As long as I'm in, everything else doesn't really matter that much. And here's Paul, the exact opposite. Would that I myself were damned if I could save others. Friends, where is that zeal and that urgency and passion for evangelism. Certainly for the Jewish people, pray that God does something glorious and great among the Jewish people. We'll talk a lot more about that coming up, but I think we could extend this to out and beyond that to all the nations and even to our own evangelism in our own circle of influence. As are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to have that hard conversation? You know, where The room gets a little tense because you brought up Jesus again and your good friend or relative doesn't really, you know, want to hear about it quite yet and you're working it into the conversation and you're seeking to minister in love. Are you willing to even be bold and share the gospel when God calls you to with someone you don't even really know that well? Are we willing to make great sacrifices to make sure that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth? That's what we're called to do. I mean, if you're willing to give up your eternal salvation, if that's the heart that he's getting at, how would we not give up all these little lesser things? (laughs) Being willing to serve, give our time, volunteer in a ministry, go to the mission field short term, and even for many long term. Paul says here, I am filled, even as I am filled with the joy of the Lord, there is an unceasing sorrow that my own people have rejected the Messiah. Verses 4 to 5, he kind of extends and talks about 
why they are so blessed after all, why this is such a big deal. I mean, what benefit really is there in being Jewish? Is it any different than being Canadian? You know, I mean, what's the difference of being Jewish here? Size verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. We talk about adoption, and God adopts us on an individual level, right? We are become sons of God, as he talked about in chapter 8. But Israel as a nation was adopted. God chose them, as he says, out of Israel I have called my son. That, that they, There's a sort of adoption, even as God is seen as also the husband to Israel. There's a different illustration, which he's the father to Israel. They are his people. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose them. And his, his election is irrevocable. There's is the glory. By that he almost certainly means the Shekinah in the Old Testament, the presence of God. As they traveled in the desert, the wilderness, for 40 years, they had a tabernacle, basically a big, large tent, imagine. And in that tabernacle, this cloud would descend and enter into that tabernacle as a representation of the very presence of God with them in a unique and special way. Yes, God is everywhere at all times, but he dwelt among his people in a special way. That, of course, carries on to when the temple was built by Solomon, God's dwelling, and then the whole sacrificial system was added in. Theirs is the covenants. A covenant is a commitment. It is an oath. God made certain promises to Israel, and God never breaks his promises. In fact, God says, before I would break my promise to David in the line of Christ there, I would break my covenant with the day and with the night as the universe would continue on. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Moses. And of course, as I mentioned, he makes a covenant with David. Theirs is the giving of the law. The Ten Commandments and the whole uh, of the law, the whole of the Torah was given not to any other nation, but specifically to Israel. And in doing so, they become a light to all the nations with the law. Theirs is the worship, the whole sacrificial system that leads and points to Jesus. The Psalms. Anyone love reading the Psalms in our praise and our worship? Theirs are the promises. All of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, all of the promises of blessing came to them. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the highest blessing of all, verse 5, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus was not a European, hippie-looking Jewish guy, as some of the pictures show. (laughs) He was a Middle Eastern, first-century Jew. And Christ is described here, verse 5, who is God over all in the flesh, but God over all blessed forever. Amen. God chose Israel. And friends, in doing so, blessed all the nations. Now, did you know that we owe, what we owe as, a, as, as sort of a world today to Israel? Um, monotheism. The belief that there, so the widespread belief that there is only one God. Most ancient pagan religions have multiple different gods. And whenever you have multiple gods, gods get a little devious, right? They get a little sinful and evil. The idea that there is only one true and living God, creator and maker of all things, who is himself perfect, That begins really with the Semites, with Abraham and the widespread belief of monotheism. The Ten Commandments and the moral law and its spread, love and protection of the weak. There's a guy, a historian named Thomas Cahill, who wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews. 
The gift of the Jews, right? And just talking about all the blessings that flow from this. The fact that people are made in the image of God and therefore valuable in his sight. He writes this, the casual cruelty of other ancient law codes. The cutting off of a nose, ears, tongue, lower lip for kissing another man's wife. Is seldom matched in the Torah. Rather, in the prescriptions of Jewish law, we cannot but note a presumption that all people, even slaves, are human and that all human lives are sacred. The constant bias is in favor not of the powerful and their possessions, but of the powerless and their poverty. And there is even a frequent enjoinder to sympathy. Quote, a sojourner you are not to oppress, and you yourselves know well the feelings of the sojourner for the sojourners you were in the land of Egypt. The bias toward the underdog is unique not only in ancient law, but in the whole history of law. However faint our sense of justice may be, insofar as it operates at all, it is still a Jewish sense of justice. As you know, we talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic our mentality that we protect the weak, that, we, that all people are equal, that all comes from Israel. You can read, you can hear Paul's heart for his own people and his desire that they would know their own Messiah. How do we do that, friends? How do we reach Jewish people in particular? How do we reach anyone in general? Simply listen in love and share the good news. First thing you need to do is listen. Listen well. Recognize the checkered history Mitch Foreman preached before, and he talked a lot about this, the checkered history that we've seen uh, between Jews and Gentiles, between the church and Jewish people. Listen to their, their struggles, listen to their pain. Understand the difficulties, as Mike Hertz said in the video. The one thing you can't do as a Jew is believe in Jesus. It's the, it's the one no-no in, in that faith. And love. Just pour out love and compassion and patience. And then most importantly, keep sharing the gospel. Keep sharing the gospel. Don't be offensive. Let the gospel be offensive, okay? Let the gospel speak for itself. No one comes to the Father but by me. Chosen People Ministries put out in their newsletter just recently here uh, this story, and it's not so unique. It's just, in fact, what's so unique about it is how typical it is in terms of what's going on in terms of their ministry. He writes this, Mitch Glazer writes this, before his bar mitzvah, a ceremony celebrating a young man's official passage to manhood at age 13, Michael's father told him he could believe in anything except Jesus. Right? You can be an atheist before you can be, believe in Jesus. Michael started reading the New Testament anyway. In his 30s, he moved to Israel with his wife. While studying Hebrew, they met an American couple who were extraordinarily loving toward them. Same thing we heard earlier. They loved. These were the loving people. After Michael poured out his heart to this couple, the man said, I cannot help you, but there is only one who can, and his name is Yeshua. After some time and ongoing conversations, both Michael and Natalie placed their trust in the Messiah, Jesus. Love well, listen well, and share clearly the gospel. Friends, we do no one any help when we say, you are all set because of your ethnicity. That is not true of the Jewish people. It's not true of the Irish. And it's not true of Koreans like me either, right? In fact, there is no lineage, no genealogy that gives you a free ticket into heaven, all right? Some people say, well, my grandmother was so religious. 
That's really great for your grandmother. That does not save you in any way. Come to know the Savior, repent and believe the gospel, and find hope and redemption in him. But for, this hasn't really dealt with the key question that Romans 9-11 through 11 has to deal with. Well, if Israel has rejected their Messiah, does not mean that the gospel has somehow failed to do what it was meant to do? Absolutely not. The sovereign plan of God is at work. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Which sounds like a paradoxical statement, right? But there is ethnic Israel. this physical Israel. And then there is a spiritual Israel. A remnant within. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In fact, Abraham had multiple children. He had Ishmael, for example, before he had Isaac. And yet it says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's the child of promise. Now you might say, well, that's a different situation because Hagar uh, was sort of not the promised way in which he was supposed to bring the seed, you know, the promise into the world here. But look what he continues. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The promise comes through Isaac. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. So here now you have twins in the womb. They had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. God is sovereign over election. She's told the older will serve the younger. Jacob becomes the promised child, not Esau. And as he ends, the hardest thing I think in this passage, Jacob I loved Esau, I hate it. A few things about that. That was a a common Hebrew idiom. To say to love one thing and hate the other is really to say I chose one and rejected the other. In fact, some translations of the Bible, um, actually I think it's NLT and others, actually translate this, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have rejected. Uh, But nevertheless, God in his sovereignty has chosen one. We find that to be true not only here in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, but all throughout. Within Israel, there's true spiritual Israel. Not, not, all, not just being Jewish makes you saved. Not just being Jewish makes you part of his people. It's those who respond in genuine and sincere faith. Friends, in fact, there are times in which Israel becomes so rebellious, they become like the nations or maybe even worse than the nations. We read in 2 Kings 21, there was a time in which Israel had become so wicked, they began offering their children to the fire as in child sacrifice, engaged in cult prostitution. And in fact, God says about them, they become more wicked than the nations I have rooted out to bring them in. Does that mean that God rejects his people entirely? No, we learn that even within that context, God has a faithful remnant, a people who truly do know him and follow him. God always has his people. As we said, Paul himself is Jewish. The apostles themselves are Jewish and they believe in the Messiah. Same is true today. God always has his people. In fact, we don't even know all that God is doing. God is mysterious in bringing people to himself. We have no idea his purpose in election. 
A great example of this, by the way, is what God's doing among the Muslim nations. Uh, We think, well, there's not many Christians in the Muslim nations. And yet, what we find again and again is God's working in mysterious ways that we didn't even know. Uh, One of the ways we find often is God is revealing himself, he's revealing his son Jesus through dreams. And I tell you again, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. That day she believed the gospel and was saved. God is at work. He's always been at work among his people. At one point, prophet Elijah thinks all of Israel has gone to Baal worship. It's over. And God says, you don't even realize I have 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. God always has this remnant. And friends, I would say the same is true of the Christian church. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not everyone who attends church, not everyone who has come and grew up in a Christian family really truly knows the Lord. You know the genuineness of your heart, and God knows the genuineness of your heart, but God always has a remnant within. When people talk about what's happening to Christianity in the United States right now, uh, numerically, statistically speaking, it is declining. And it is declining very rapidly. I don't know if you know that. Um, we are heading, very, so we're seeing a lot of churches close. We're seeing a lot of pulpits empty out where there's not a lot of pastors who are preaching. We're seeing the seminaries. There's not a lot of people training for ministry behind it. it. And some people say, what's happening? Christianity is dying out. I don't think so. I think God's remnant is being faithful. <laughs> and a lot of that which was never really truly his is starting to reveal itself. God always has a faithful remnant. In fact, Christianity tends to thrive in situations where there's more opposition rather than in situations where it is well accepted. We trust in the sovereign hand of God. Friends, when we look at God's relationship to Israel, yes, it is a surprise. (laughs) Yes, we didn't expect, we would not have read the Old Testament and expected that Israel would reject their Messiah But what we learn in the scriptures is God has a plan. In fact, what he says later on, and we'll get to it, is that if their rejection of Jesus meant salvation for the world, so the gospel goes out, as Jesus said in his parable, the wedding feast, those who were invited refused to come, go to the streets and bring everyone else in. (laughs) Anyone that would come. But if their rejection of the gospel means salvation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but the resurrection of the dead. When Israel begins to receive their Messiah, we know the day is coming. (laughs) Christ's return is drawing near. I'll tell you this, there are more Jewish believers in Jesus than at any time in the history of Christianity. I don't know how, 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 how close we have to get, I don't know what the percentage has to be, but let's just keep ministering, serving, and loving. God is sovereign and he's working out his plan. If God is working out his plan in the big stuff, like election, like his people Israel, the gospel going to the nations and his future plans for Israel, then God is sovereign over the small stuff like our lives. Did you know that in the year 8000 BC, so they say, there were only about 5 million people on the planet. In the year AD 1, there were 300 million The current world population is 7.9 billion, estimated to reach about 9.7 billion in the year 2050. 
Again, these are radical estimates. We have no idea what the real numbers are, right? It's been estimated that there have been 117 billion members of our species, human beings, born on earth. Because every day a number of folks die, a number of folks are born, right? And in God's sovereign plan, every one of those 117 billion people, or whatever the real number is, play their part in his perfect and sovereign plan. And what Romans 9 through 11 reminds me, and you, is I get to be part of it. God brought me in and showed mercy to me. That in his sovereign election, he didn't just choose the big, broader picture. He chose me. He chose you. To pour out his mercy and his grace and to make us faithful stewards for his kingdom. Friends, as we celebrate the gospel, let's feel the weight that Paul felt to reach the nations. Let's pray for Israel. Let's learn to listen and love well. Let's trust God's sovereign hand that he always has a remnant. And let's rejoice that we get to be part of this plan. Would you pray with me? I want to end with a prayer from George Whitfield in his journals. Oh, when will I be free from indwelling sin? Lord, deliver me from this body of death. Deal with me as it pleases you, Lord. You may justly take everything from me, for I have abused your loving kindness. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What am I that I should be fed daily with heavenly manna? Lord, you fill my soul. Let me praise you with joyful lips. I adore your infinite goodness that reaches down to me. Do not leave me to myself, but purge me for your mercy's sake, that I may bring forth more fruit. Correct me when I go astray, and lead me in your perfect way. Dearest Lord, for your mercy's sake, never let me distrust you again. O me of little faith. Lord, your judgments are like the great deep. Your footsteps are not known. Just and holy are you, O King of saints. In the season of night, let me arise and give you thanks. Let my speech be of your loving kindness and tender mercies all day long. May it be my sleep, my food, and drink to do the will of my Heavenly Father. You hold the wind in your fists and the waters in the palm of your hands. Accept our thanks for your past mercies. Set apart our travels, and if it be best, carry us with speed to where we should go. Send me wherever and whenever it seems good to your divine majesty. Raise my heart and make your power known in the hearts of your people. Add daily to your church those who will be saved. They are noted in your book. Let them also be written on my heart. And now, let your servant depart in peace, for our eyes have seen our heart, and our hearts have felt your salvation. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen and amen.